Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. I will be teaching a remote class, Core Texts in Philosophy, this spring, starting mid-January. And I'd love you to join me. For details, please see partiallyexaminedlife.com slash class. This is pretty much Pop, a culture podcast. Today, without a human celebrity guest that might make us relatable. Today, we consider the Muppets from their inception through their recent offerings created long after most of the original participants have died or retired. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer here doing a sort of generic Jim Henson monsterish voice. Maybe we'll Rolf the dog, some, something in that neighborhood. I'm Al Baker, and I can only think of one song about rainbows and what's on the other side. <laughs> I'm Sarah Lynn Breck, and I still don't know why Grover never got his own movie. My name is Lawrence Ware, and I legitimately think that Muppets Take Manhattan is a very, very great film. Hmm. All right. This was a request for the holiday season from Mr. Al Baker. Why don't you start us off on why, why this holds a special place in your heart? Give your backstory. My Christmas tradition is largely based around watching movies and TV show Christmas specials. And I watch the same ones every year and without fail, some of them come and go, but there are two movies that always make my Christmas watch list. One is it's a wonderful life. And the other one is a Muppets Christmas Carol. And I think it is entirely appropriate to put those two movies in the same league. It's a wonderful life is an undisputed masterpiece of cinema. A Muppets Christmas Carol in my view is the best family Christmas movie that anyone has ever made. It's also, in my view, the best rendition of A Christmas Carol that has ever been produced. And so talking about The Muppets at Christmas seemed like an excellent opportunity for us to all agree that The Muppets Christmas Carol is the best Christmas movie that's ever been made. But further to that, I think The Muppets are a fascinating cultural phenomenon that are not discussed enough. I can't think of another, certainly not another modern example of a crop of celebrities like the Muppets who don't exist. They're not real people, but are treated in the popular culture. Like everybody is just incredibly happy in the popular culture to entertain the fantasy that Kermit the Frog is a guy who lives in a house in LA and occasionally goes on TV and makes movies. Nobody ever talks about any of the Muppets as if they are anything other than real kind of C-list celebrities. (laughs) <laughs> and that is fascinating to me. The whole Muppet shtick is fascinating to me. I think they're a real treasure of particularly American pop culture and th- something that, frankly, you should all be a lot more proud of than I think you are. And I just wanted to talk about the Muppets. And I think the Muppet Christmas Carol is possibly the best way into talking about the Muppets. Wow. All right. Interesting. I think Sarah and I are more in the generation that was, you know, actually watching the Muppet show as it came out. I saw the Muppet movie in the theaters. It was like bigger than Star Wars for me. Josh and I watched it, the Muppet movie last night, and we sang along to all the songs. It was actually amazing how many songs, bangers, are in that one movie that still are great today, still play so well today. We're arguing whether or not that movie is actually 
a musical or not. Sure, it's a musical. Sure. Sure, why not? I mean, insofar as movie musicals, lots of Disney movie musicals had like three songs. And like, is it a musical? Well. (laughs) But it's like, yeah, I grew up on The Muppets. We watched The Muppet Show. Al, you sent over the, you know, suggested the one episode with... Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli, thank you. But of course, as soon as I clicked on it, I was like, oh, I'm watching the Madeline Kahn episode. Oh, I'm watching, you know, the Steve Martin episode. And I went through all of these and I could not believe how many people were absolutely clawing their way into this show. It was so popular. I think it kind of went over my head a little bit, like how popular it was with adults growing up. But it is just as enjoyable for me to watch it now as, you know, a 52-year-old as it was as, a, you know, six-year-old. Wow. Lawrence, what's your backstory here? Okay, I need to address a few things. <laughs> First of all, It's a Wonderful Life is a very good movie. I don't know that it's great. I don't love that movie. It feels a little bit overlong. I think it's overhyped. So get out of here with that. Two, Muppet Christmas Carol, solid Christmas Carol. Nowhere near the best Christmas Carol adaptation ever made. I would put Scrooged from 1988 starring Bill Murray above that. And I would put a Christmas Carol from 1938 directed by Edward L. Marin, I think his name was, above that. So get out of here with all these overarching proclamations that are absolutely wrong. Come on, dog. I'm a film critic. Don't make me do this. Don't make me have this (laughs) fight with you. Now, I love The Muppets a great deal. I love The Muppets. I love Sesame Street. I love that whole oeuvre of puppets simultaneously living side by side in this alternate universe where it's perfectly normal to walk down the street and see a puppet living in the trash. And no one says anything and no one calls the police and no one calls the CIA and like, what is going on? How are there animated things living? I love that universe. I love the good feelings and all that kind of stuff. Were, were you Fraggle generation or were you Muppet Babies generation or what, what was your childhood? I was Fraggle Generation. Oh, yeah. I we did watched not Fraggles like too. Fraggle Rock, though. But I was of that generation. To be honest, the only things that really worked for me was The Muppets and Sesame Street. That's about it. Sesame Street, by far, really had a major part of my childhood. I remember watching... My mother used to make me... I remember she introduced me to Sesame Street. There was a episode starring a very young Luther Vandross. Uh, and he's singing. Uh, I think it came out in the 70s, 78 or something like that. Um, oh and so that's how she introduced me to it. And so I really enjoyed that. But then I began to kind of expand down and kind of look at the Muppets. And I wasn't a big fan of like the Muppets TV shows, but I really enjoyed the Muppets movies. As I said, I think that Muppets Take Manhattan is a masterpiece. I love Treasure Island. I do love A Christmas Carol. I think I love the Muppets movie, that movie that happened. And then I, I, I like the recent ones. The two recent, I forgot what what they're called. It's Um, Muppets and Muppets Most Wanted. But I'm not going to make any overarching proclamations of the the best things that have ever been created, but I really, really enjoy them. I think it's really interesting that the Muppets and Sesame Street have kind of transcended generations. That It started in the 70s, 60s, that time period, and it's still going today. Like I, I show my kids Muppets movies now. And they really enjoy it. Like, hey, look at that person, that famous person showing up. And that song, and I think we could get into why that is. And I would put him easily on the top of the list of some of the best children's programming that has ever been made. 
So you folks know that I kind of, as we were preparing for this, tried to maybe weasel out of watching a bunch more mm. Muppet stuff because I was not in a Muppets mode. I've since got back into it. I still have issues like the episodes of the original show, which I loved as a kid. You know, I remember it like season four or something in real time. You know, every week I was mm-hmm. watching those when they came out. You know, that's who I thought adult celebrities were, Shields and Yarnell or whoever was was on that week. <laughs> but the ones that I watch, and I watched like the John Cleese and most of the Steve Martin and uh, the Florence Henderson, I very oh, yeah. seldom even like smiled during those. Like the humor was so dated to me. By the time I got to like rewatching the original Muppet movie, like that is just so burned on my brain from seeing it repeatedly mm-hmm. as a child that it's just pure nostalgia. And I agree that those Paul Williams songs are right on. And I'm glad because I had only seen Muppets Christmas Carol once. And as I don't know, a teen or something and wasn't particularly impressed. It was all right, whatever. But watching it again this time. Yeah, I think it was really well balanced and a well crafted thing. It's exactly the same team that made the Muppet movie, except for, of course, you know, Jim Henson Henson. and Richard Hunt, but you know, to the players, Mm -hmm. but the same Writer Jerry Jewell, Paul Williams still doing all the music. He came back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that it is Michael Caine doing it totally straight, I think just as good as Patrick Stewart or any of the other, Albert Finney, any of the other. Amazing. Did you see that quote? It was a quote? wonderful portrayal, wonderful act. And the casting of the Muppets into their roles in A Christmas Carol is just perfect. There was never a better Bob Cratchit mm-hmm. than, and like Sam the Eagle as the, the schoolmaster and everything. It's just, <laughs> oh, and Fozzie Bear as Mr. Fozzie Bear. It just all lines up so perfectly. <laughs> and Gonzo. And Gonzo as Charles Dickens. Yeah. As Charles Dickens. Perfect. Yeah, that, that was the sort of comic through line and they balanced it pretty well. And I like the fact that Muppets were not the ghosts or the ghosts were puppets, but they weren't like, mm. maybe they right. were puppets from the Henson's 80s post. Like, I don't know if they were original to this special or you know, had existed in some form, but they were not familiar and they were trying to, you know, make use of the effects of the time. So Mickey's Christmas Carol is much more often played in our house. My wife's grew up watching that thing where I think probably there have been other shows, Mr. Magoo or whatever, you know, different versions of this where they stick all their characters in. And so not having Fozzie be the ghost of Christmas present or something like, okay, we're going to actually tread a line here between the familiar stuff of the Muppets joking around, but like we're going to kind of take it seriously as a, at least an effects laden version of the thing. I think they did that too. I read somewhere maybe on the Wikipedia page that they had originally thought about bringing in familiar Muppets as the ghost characters and they decided against that. And I think it's because they really were taking this old story very seriously. And some of it is scary. Some of this stuff is frightening for their audience. So I liked that they did that, that they went that way. It speaks to something that's related to something I I talked about in my introduction, which I think is a real secret to the longevity of the Muppets. Everything that's been made featuring the Muppets takes the reality of the Muppets themselves extremely seriously. And I wonder if the choice in in a Muppets Christmas Carol is is to do with that. So like, it's fine that Muppets can be, you know, schoolmasters and fruit vendors and whatever else, like the Muppet characters, Mm -hmm. but they can't be ghosts because ghosts don't exist. But we all know that the Muppets do exist. Well, except the Marleys. The Marleys. I hadn't thought about it that way. But the Marleys were real and then they died. I don't know. It makes sense in my head. Good point, Mark. But it still makes it still makes sense in my head. Right? 
That's interesting. I do want to have a conversation really quickly. We don't have to go, go deep into this about just why the Christmas Carol is so beloved, why it's like been adapted so many times and why it works for kids because it shouldn't. It's like a horror story. It's a ghost story. It's really like, so, so why do you guys think it works so well this time? And it, it's appropriate for children. It's not too scary. Like what, what do they do to make it palatable for children? One thing is that I mean, we should really talk about the fact it's very well known, right? But we should really talk about the fact that A Christmas Carol provides the cultural blueprint for what we all think that Christmas is. So the fact that it's snowing, the fact that it's basically a Victorian London is the core traditional Christmas setting. The fact that it involves the moral lesson of Christmas has to do with learning to get rid of your selflessness and embrace being giving. All of this stuff is completely the invention of Charles Dickens, but it has become the way that we think about Christmas in Britain and the United States, at least. And the fact that A Christmas Carol has lasted in, as long as it has and been as influential as it has surely has something to do with the fact that it is just the purest expression of the Christmas spirit because it's what our idea of the Christmas spirit is ultimately based on. Mm-hmm. But there's also the fact that it is just a cracking fairy story. It's a I mean, really Charles good Dickens story. Knew what knew what he was doing. It gives people permission to have a good time. You know, this is the one time of year when you can spend a lot of money, you can treat your friends, you can treat yourself. And that's something that I think as a kid is incredibly appealing. It is okay to spoil yourself and to spoil others during this time of year. And being stingy and cheap like Scrooge is is a bad thing. That's something that I that would have absolutely resonated for me as a kid. It's a bad thing, but it, as as far as kids go, it might be the most forgivable of sins. Like all you have to do is just not do that anymore. It's not like you've been. I'm a torturer, and then the ghosts come. I'm not going to torture anymore. That doesn't undo the torture. The you torture done. that you did. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. So maybe being a liar, you could just like, oh, come clean, and everybody forgives you. But even that, like, have you been living a lie? Like, it, you know. So whoa, here we here we go. The lifetime version of the Christmas Carol. Let's go. <laughs> but it would be interesting to see the the long term effects that you're going to save Bob Cratchit's boy now. But what about all the other boys that you let die in the past through your stingy behavior? All the people that you evicted, <laughs> and you know their relatives are not going to forgive you or what, whatever. That does not come out in the story. You can actually completely turn things around. You can, yeah. Except you might have a, a lot of credit card debt. Come January. So Mark's out here <laughs> shitting on the Christmas Carol and saying that it's morally complex. And I, I don't know. I'm gonna push back, man. I like being stingy. I like my money. You know, I don't want to <laughs> like when my kids come to me and it's like, "Yo, give me a PS5." Like, save up your fucking money and buy your own PS5. Like, why am I <laughs> buying this for you? Like, I'll buy you a game. I'm not gonna buy you a $500 gaming system. I don't know. I think that Christmas is a good time to spend a little bit more money than you normally do, but you know, within limits. It is permission. So I've been reading a little bit about whether or not this story is a capitalist story or an anti-capitalist story. Hmm. What do you guys think? Interesting. It's a liberal story. The, the moral of the story is if only rich people made more morally generous decisions, everything would be fine. Oh, yeah. I think that Al's hit it. To frame it as capitalist versus anti-capitalist, like it doesn't say that the people marched on Scrooge and like 
upturn the social system. That's not what the story says. The story just says, yo, you can keep your money. Just like be a little bit more generous. I think Al's got it right. I think he's got it right there. On the, he hit the, the nail on the head there. So the, the version where he is visited by the ghosts and joins a commune and gives away all of his wealth <laughs> and, and says to that, his... That's not the version. That's not the version we got. All the rats you now own the store please you know but here's some bylaws you have to obey to make sure you do not become corrupt in the way that i did but i I do think so getting back to the muppets i do think that the muppets ability to tell a variety of stories like there are wide ranging kind of stories that they're telling but do it within like the muppet world and with a muppet humor i think that's absolutely brilliant I, i i do not think that they get enough i think al is right they don't get enough credit for how clever they are and how ingenious they are to create this world to populate it with memorable characters fun is happening songs are happening but they tell really good stories you know there are a few muppet movies that are you know hit or miss but overarching they're hitting more often than they're missing like those are really really good solid written told movies like the direction is good cinematography it's whatever but the writing is good. The acting is oftentimes a little over the top and cheesy, but good. The voice acting is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I feel like there's more emotion emoting from these puppets than in some act, you know, live actors in movies that I've seen recently. Is amazing. I think that the artistry is just amazing. These puppeteers are incredible artists. Did you read that that Michael Caine quote? where he said, I'm going to play this movie like I'm working with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I will never wink. I will never do anything Muppety. I'm going to play Scrooge as if it is utterly dramatic role and there are no puppets around me. And he was... And that's the reason why it works. That is exactly the reason why it works. Yeah. And Tim Curry paid attention clearly because he did exactly the same thing in Muppet Treasure Island, which is equally brilliant for the same... For the same reasons. When they were creating the Muppets, were they thinking about like archetypes? Because these characters are so indelible. Like there are certain people that I know who are like Miss Piggy. There are certain people who I know who are like Kermit. Like there's like a through line between human personality and like what the Muppets represent. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. And that's part of the reason why it works so well. Because you see us as human beings reflected back in these puppets. And yeah, they're funny and yeah, they're over the top, but there's something there. Like when I think about Kermit, I see a lot of myself in the in, in Kermit. And it's not because he's a star character, but like I'm really very much like that dude. And so I wonder what's going on with like where they came up with the ideas for these characters and then why they last so long and why they kind of represent certain characteristics. I think it was something discovered largely as it went along because they're mostly created as utterly two-dimensional and i think the sesame street character is even more so it's like how rich is cookie monster going to be in terms of character but even these others like you know fozzy bear sort of a one shtick the statler and waldorf what's been interesting about i only got through about half of this recent mayhem show that came out like this year but the fact that you're actually have taking these minor characters and spending significant time with them to like have to develop personality characteristics. I found that intriguing, I guess, at least. <laughs> you made it through more of that show than I did. How, how successful were they? I mean, it's not something that I'm flocking back to. I actually enjoyed the, I think, famously horribly received 2015 Office-like sitcom. I actually enjoyed that quite a bit more. I think I got through maybe half of that, and I probably will watch that 
in my spare time. I'm not sure about the mayhem thing. There was just too many. Then the non-Muppet characters, I guess this is another issue of, sorry, not to distract from Lawrence's question in the first place, but like if, you know, this was supposed to be a study, this sort of came up in our, I did a Peanuts episode last year, the year before. It's sort of the same, like, you know, are you more of a peppermint patty or are you a Charlie Brown or, you know, are these characters that are literally (laughs) two-dimensional created to be archetypes? And with the Muppets, it, it complicates things because it was sort of determined from the beginning that like you have to have real people in there for this to be relatable. Human beings, you have to have guest stars. And if this was all about oh. seeing yourself as Kermit and whatever, then that would not be necessary. That's the starting point is the archetype, right? But in the performances, you get so much out of Fozzie Bear or Miss Piggy. I mean, and Miss Piggy is someone who is not supposed to be particularly relatable, but you know what? I root for her. I root for her every single time. It feels like the Muppets themselves, a lot of the key Muppet cast are just lightning in a bottle because they are archetypes. They're broadly drawn. I think the Muppets work best when they stay broadly drawn because it lets them lean into their self-aware, cheesy humor shtick, which is rarely funny, but always charming, which I think is the usually the feeling that I come away with, especially with The Muppet Show. It's like, yeah, like you said, Mark, the Steve Martin episode, particularly I watched and was achingly aware of how little I was actually laughing at what was going on the uh, the screen. (laughs) I felt felt quite awkward about it. But it's still charming because they're trying to be funny and they're not being funny. And Steve Martin's there being annoyed at a frog and it's fun to watch. Yeah, I think that The Muppets kind of deliver on, on that vibe more cleanly when they stay caricatures, essentially. But what they do real well, and I think part of what's good about having real people interact with the Muppets, is that seems to humanize them, gives them a route to humanize these broad characteristics in a way which wouldn't be possible if they were only acting and interacting with one another. I think the way that real people interact with Muppets on screen is a huge part of what makes them special. I mean, it is that idea of playing it straight, you know, that they are taking these, they're not winking necessarily at the audience. I mean, there's a little bit more winking in the Muppet show for sure, but there's, you know, not in the movies at all. I mean. They never make jokes about the fact that they're not real. That's one really interesting thing. No one ever makes a, there's a hand up my ass joke or there's a, or like who's holding up your strings. And they make jokes about every other aspect of the production. I was watching, there was an episode of The Muppet Show where there were, where Kermit's closing line was, thank you, you've been a lovely laughter track, which is a great joke because <laughs> there's no real audience in the in the thing. But they never make, they make jokes about the artifice of everything apart from the reality of the Muppets themselves. Did you see the one where Kermit is tap dancing and you don't see, you don't see his legs tap dance at all. <laughs> you just see... <laughs> from here up and he does the you know back and forth and just it is hilarious but that is about as close as you get to this is a puppet you know but they don't say any of that at all it was (laughs) that was a pretty brilliant bit have any of you seen one of my favorite instances of the reality of the muppets have any of you seen the video that john oliver did with cookie monster where they're like co-anchoring a news show and it's just the most wonderful thing because john oliver is clearly in no sense, just completely buying into the reality of Cookie Monster as a co-host. The best part of the video isn't the video itself, it's the outtakes, because it's John Oliver and Cookie Monster just making jokes to each other about what's going on. And just Cookie Monster just seems like a real person. It's really, it's really funny. 
<laughs> and, and I think that's part of the humor is that is that they are taken seriously. Like I, I imagine behind the scenes, there's all kinds of stuff with hands and puppets and strings and all kinds of stuff. And it's very kind of maniacal. However, when it's on screen, you're in a completely different, like honestly, a different dimension where there are these puppets who are like living their lives. Like I imagine they go to puppet funerals and they have puppet church and they, <laughs> you know, study puppet philosophy and they have like a puppet Derrida. Like I, I imagine they have all that stuff, right? It's just like, it's a real world and they really take it seriously and they don't wink and they, they like play it straight. That's the reason why the film works so well. Kane plays it straight and everyone else follows his lead and plays it straight. And because of that, it's really good. If, if they were to wink a moment, I'd be drawn out of the film. I would not take it seriously anymore. But because they're so in the film and it is like in this universe and you take it seriously, it works every single time. And I don't know where they came up with to do it that way. I thought that I was going to watch this movie and like be a serious film critic and look at, oh, this can't be real. Man, I threw that shit out the window five minutes in and I was on for the ride and I loved it because it just works. That was sort of the magic of Sesame Street. It was something that, and I don't know if this was the first time, but it was really early on where you had something that was programming for children that parents could tolerate, you know, that parents could sit down and watch with them. And I found that it's in those performances. It is some sort of magic. I don't know what it is, but it is in those performances that as a kid, you are absolutely relating to Kermit the Frog and Fozzie Bear and all of them. And as an adult, I'm absolutely with them too. I care about what happens to these characters. And that's an amazing feat. That is an amazing feat. That is really, really rare. I took the opportunity in prepping for this to look on YouTube a lot at like the old footage of how, like, because, you know, the Muppet Show in the 70s was like his fifth attempt at something, you know, that he did this local show in Washington, D.C., and then some different, a lot of talk show appearances and some of them. So they're sort of two sources. One is just like the Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy model. The I'm going to be, you know, have my ventriloquist dummy, a person talking to a puppet. And it was even better that Jim Henson would go on talk shows and be himself, but also have Kermit on. And so Kermit is talking to the host. And whether it's with a small child, then, you know, those are some of the best YouTube videos of just like, Kermit or Cookie Monster talking to a, a small child. Like those are like, that is the whole point of the, the exercise. But the other thing of these old talk shows appearances were a lot of them didn't even have lines. He did this thing with his wife, Jim Henson. And I don't know that his wife ever talked like they would use a, a pre-recorded thing where Jim did all the voices himself. And so a lot of them are just like watching a funny puppet move around in a funny way and squiggle its face in a funny way. And so Kermit, as introduced, was is often like just singing along to some pop song of the day. Like it's it's really like YouTube stuff done back. This is very short form stuff, and so I think it's very much like why he is on the map, got on the map. You know, he was not the writer. He was not Jerry Jewell that wrote these screenplays. He was not the head writer on his own show. It was just like cool looking puppets that are very expressive, and you can squish your hand around and make them have different. And that are just charming in themselves. And like, so what can you do with that? And then the evolution of like these distinct characters 
that could live on beyond that initial puppeteer. That's like sort of something they found, I feel like, as they were going. It feels like Jim Henson has a rare quality about him that probably provided a lot of creative direction for the Muppets, as well as having the initial character designs for the Muppets themselves. He reminds me a lot of Mr. Rogers, and it's not surprising because they're both children's TV luminaries, but there's a sincerity and gentleness to Jim Henson, which feels like it permeates everything about the Muppets and what they stand for. And it seems really important to what the Muppets became to me, the fact that they did come from this particular guy. And probably inspired, like, I don't know a lot about Jim Henson's personal, like, political history, but it's really remarkable. It's really easy to forget how radical Sesame Street is as an idea for a children's TV show, because the whole thing is about finding support in your local community. You don't get help. If you're in trouble, you don't get help from police or, like, other kind of state authority figures. You go to the person who you know around the block, who you know because they're your neighbor and and your community is where you go to find help. Even to the point of having like a character like Oscar the Grouch, who is clearly like coded local homeless person and is introduced as just another figure around the town, someone who is a person as much as everybody else is. And there's loads of elements of Sesame Street, which, which are really radical considering that it came, when did it first out? The mid-60s? So that together with like the gentleness and the sincerity and kindness, which permeates through everything the Muppets do, I feel like it's fair to trace that back to Jim Henson as a singular visionary behind it. But you did more homework on that than me, Mark. Does that seem fair or was it more this like just broader team of very talented people that he got behind him? I mean, it wasn't his idea. The, the original idea of the Children's Television Workshop people like, Let's do commercials, basically. Use the technology of commercials to sell reading and writing to kids. And they got Jim Henson because he had established himself as like, you have these charming critters. They can absolutely do the job. And testing it, they were like, we have to have more puppets. (laughs) Like we've watched the kids watching the show. And when it cuts to an animated section, something that does not have the puppets, their attention wanders. More puppets, all puppets all the time. And uh, Henson was like, I'm not, you know, he wanted to make an adult show. And so this actually became sort of a, an albatross, you know, that it, it took several pilots before the Muppet show as of all ages, an adult product was approved, including that disastrous Saturday Night Live thing. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Saturday Night Live season one featured a Muppet segment. But it did? yes, yes, it didn't have any of the Muppets, you know, they're just different puppets, you know, but with these same voices and the union rules had it such that the Saturday Night Live writers had to write the sketches that the Muppets read and nobody was happy with this and it didn't last very long. Not quite the same magic. <laughs> Since we're on Jim Henson, what do you guys think about two other films that I think people love, but I don't love, but there's the Dark Crystal. Which we can get into that if you want to. And then there's Labyrinth, which I, anyway, I'm not going to say anything. Like, what do you guys think about those films? It's like Muppet adjacent because there mm-hmm. are puppets. It seems like it's like in the same world, although this is like a little bit more of a magical, like it's a magical dimension. I love Dark Crystal when it came out, but I was the age for that. I mean, I liked Krull when it came out. All right. So that's the age. <laughs> the people that liked. No, stop, sir. Krull is a great movie. <laughs> Do not shit on Crawl. I hate, I feel it happening. Don't do it. That's a great movie. It it is not comparable to the Dark Crystal. I'm sorry. Crawl is great. That little thing, that little thing that he had, whatever that was, 
I made one and I threw it around the house. No, Crawl is a great movie. I kind of like I like both both those movies, Labyrinth more than Dark Crystal, but I think just more because we had Labyrinth on video when I was a kid and we didn't have the Dark Crystal on video. It wasn't scary to you? It was a little scary, but in a good way. Yeah, it had a lot of the same flaws. Lots of the Muppet movies have flaws. Labyrinth, I think, is flawed in the way that late 80s, early 90s family fantasy movies mm-hmm. tended to be flawed, which is that the plot's maybe a little bit confusing. It's maybe not really clear what the stakes are or who's doing what. It is very labyrinthian, that story. It really is. Like, there's a lot of very special stuff with David Bowie singing to puppets. And you wouldn't trade that for the world. How about we just get a video <laughs> and not a movie? Like just a video with David Bowie? Because that's, that's like something David Bowie would have done. Like just a video with David Bowie singing to Muppets. Because that is by far the best part of that movie is him singing. But everything else, man, I can leave that. The Dark Crystal is lesser to me because it doesn't have David Bowie singing. Those two movies didn't really resonate for me. I don't know why. Because you were young and you had a a sharp film critic within you (laughs) that was burgeoning. And that's the reason why it didn't resonate. Yeah, that sounds accurate. Hmm. Did you just do a Muppet movie? I'm trying to do this. this <laughs> that's what sticks with me is the Skeksis, the evil Skeksis. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> their voices. Oh, okay, and their that's things. right. That's right. Like, th- I reference that on a regular basis. <laughs> an and, no, and nobody knows what you're talking <laughs> about except older people. The kids are like, what the hell is he up to? You, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sadly older. I don't, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> what did you guys think of the new Muppet movie? Well, the 2015 one has been one. The Jason Segel one? I really enjoyed it. I loved it. Yeah, me too. I like that one too. It's a fan's love letter to the thing. And the music in that is really good. Like the songs Mm. are really catchy. Uh, The songs that he sings. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was super fun. The score for that. Ah. The guy from Flight of the Concords and What We Do in the Shadows. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that makes makes sense then. Why why it is so catchy? The stories, eh, stories or whatever. But the songs are really like stand out. And, and Amy Adams is really kind of affecting and catchy. And she plays well off of Jason Siegel, who's affecting and catchy. And then there's that their rendition of Menomina at the very end is really good. Like, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it was I, cute. Now, now, when I rewatch that, I fast forward the story parts and get to the songs. But Did anybody watch Emmett Otter's Jug Bad Christmas? Nope. Yes, for the first time in my uh, life, I, did I never wow. seen that. didn't know anything about it. It was so beautiful. That's such a lovely thing. Wait a minute. It what? Is okay, beautiful. wait, wait, wait. What is this? What is this again? So this was a made-for-HBO thing between yeah. okay. because they couldn't sell it, it anywhere came else. Out between seventy-seven. Yeah, between like seasons one and two of the Muppet Show. Nineteen seventy-seven on HBO. Yeah, yeah. And apparently before, that exists. Um, cast it between Emmanuel and a boxing match. Wasn't that all they showed? It was a yeah. It was a television special, and wow, we, we had that taped, and so we had. I know where all the commercial breaks are because they. And so we had that on Betamax tapes. So I am totally aging myself. Holy crap! But we had that on I Betamax. Have not tape. heard of Betamax we, in years. We wore that tape out. That was one of our favorite. We watched that in the summer. Like, we love that movie. Or that it wasn't even a movie. It was less than an hour. That was absolutely something that I grew up with. And uh, and our entire family loved it. And I found the book that it was based on. It was just like a short little children's book that it was based on. And like in the 90s or something, I found it. And I gave it to my mom. But I love that. We rewatched it. And I watched it with 
my daughter. And I was surprised at how well it still held up. I mean, it's definitely corny, but good songs. Great songs. Puppetry is a beautiful. They were just showing off there. I just felt like Jim Henson was just showing off. I'm still getting over the fact that Al just mentioned Emmanuel, a very important figure in my young development. Um, <laughs> and I have not thought of Emmanuel for was it like three or four movies or something. Like that? And I I haven't so, thought I've of I haven't thought of her by now. I haven't thought of her in many years. Thank you, Al, for taking me back to that formative time in my young adulthood. One of my nephews, his, uh, that's just something that they would, I feel like both of my kids had it something that we would show them that they would like get fixated on. So for my daughter, it was frosty, frosty, frost. And for my son, it was the <laughs> peanuts Halloween thing, which strangely enough, he cued on a signed document, signed document. The opening joke about the football involves a signed document. So my son oh. learned to say signed document before he learned to say paper. Uh, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but my nephew, I remember him coming to our house and just like, because he wanted to watch Emmett Otter more. So this is something that has the capacity to resonate with children, even in the recent past. The music was incredible. It was interesting to tease gush about the, the puppetry in that, because the puppets to me looked cheap. Uh, but there were, <laughs> I was really impressed with the effort. There's this one, there's this one scene near the beginning where they're on the river and there are ducks moving around. And my girlfriend was watching with me and was like, how are they making the ducks move like that? And then there's a shot where you can see all the strings. And each one <laughs> of these ducks that's floating around just as background in this scene has like six different movable parts with strings on it. And that kind of effort and attention to detail is obviously hugely impressive. Oh, I know. But I was also just the, that's where I was thinking about the expression in their faces. You know, like even when Ma like is like, hmm, you know, and I was like, oh, I've seen my grandmother make that face, you know, and that was somebody doing that with their hand in a puppet, you know. It felt like the main characters had like two points of articulation in their face. I missed Kermit's expressiveness when I was watching Emma Sotter. Based on the book. Yeah, That's how they looked at the right. books. So the they were okay. And apparently, I think when Disney bought, I don't know what it was, when Disney bought the Muppets and they were re-showing Emmett Otter, they had to take the Kermit portion out. So he's the, he introduces the story and then he's at the end. He rides his bike. He does that show off. He riding his bike thing and he falls off at the beginning and then he gets mugged by the uh, Riverbottom Nightmare Band. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great, that's a great way to begin that story. This is what I thought rock and roll was. That rock and oh, roll yeah. was people who are not positive additions to society. <laughs> <laughs> They're just a bunch of snakes and lizards. They had a great song though. Yeah, it was a great song. I, all of them were good. That movie's so fun. I don't need to see it though for a while. To sort of finish off our holiday stuff, I mean, there have been a number of Christmas specials and things, and even a pretty recent one that I found on Disney, this like Letters to Santa, which uh, I did sit through it, but I did not enjoy it as one of the most, that's 2008. It's not, th it's not that recent. And some other things from the 80s that I was looking at on YouTube, but the John Denver things. So one of the things, people my age, we would get like the LPs. So I had the, like the Muppet Show LP and the Muppet Christmas LP with John Denver. So I listened to these things and it did make me think because in, in revisiting this stuff as an adult, like, you know, I pull, we're listening to Christmas songs. Let me pull up a Muppet Christmas song. But like, 
is there a point just to hear someone singing in this voice? Like, no, there's really not. <laughs> it, unless it goes with a, fel- a piece of felt. The 12 Days of Christmas was super fun, though. You have to say. 12 Days of Christmas is by far the high mark. I don't think I've listened to anything else significantly beyond that song. That song is still in rotation in my house, by the way, the 12 Days of Christmas. Um, Because it's fun to sing along and you try to do the voices and all kind of stuff. But beyond that, eh. John Denver was like a central artist in my house. Like my dad was that kind of folk singer and... So I got a lot of John Denver as a kid. Yeah, so I have was... never listened to John Denver. <laughs> yeah, we had our fair share of John Denver. It was a center house thing. too. Yeah, yeah, one... I was into Tim. Those long locks, those that perfect seventies hair. He had one big song in the eighties. This "Don't Close Your Eyes Tonight," which is like an overtly sex John Denver thing, and that just disgusted me because John <laughs> Denver is not about no. sex. He's about no. he's children's entertainment. And no, Grandma's no, Feather no. Bed. I and, bet John and, Denver got down back in the day, though. Oh, yeah, he I bet took he got oh, he down. so did. much cocaine that he like <laughs> lost the middle of his nose. At least that's one of the urban legends. <laughs> <laughs> he died because he made like a plane out of balsa wood himself, and he flew it. I'm, I'm sure it was not out of balsa wood, but again, this is what the urban legends do to it. But like, I want to be and go to space. I want to fly. And so he built a plane himself and crashed in it. And that was the end of John Denver. So yeah, I think he crashed it a few times though before he did himself in. Not like you weren't warned. Wait a minute, okay. he crashed multiple times and kept flying that damn plane? <laughs> oh my god! Well, because they had to take away his pilot license, I think, for a while because he drank too much. Oh, but they gave it back to him. So he was doing I cocaine. I don't know that he they did, drinking, actually. If you build it yourself, you don't need a license. But he can't make songs about sex, though. Wait, but I want to know. I want to know, Mark, you asked in the notes, like, if you were a pup, if you were a Muppet, which Muppet would you be? Excellent closing. Yeah, question. we've heard from Lawrence that you were the, the, the Kermit. I want to. I am definitely Kermit. No one gets to be Kermit. No one gets to be Kermit. Well, okay, Kermit's off the table. Okay, I'm coming back. Give me Kermit's a second. Kermit's off the Keep table. Keep going. Y'all go first. Kermit is basically the Charlie Brown of the of the ensemble. That- you guys are, are looking at me and saying, you can't be this. I- you are not allowed. <laughs> I, how dare you? Keep this going. I'll, I'll give you another answer. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. I thought about this a little bit. I've always considered myself a little bit of a Janice, just a smidge, because mm. I'm California girl. But I think I'm kind of a mix between Janice and Scooter. I think I'm a, a combination. You really nailed that. That's, Thank you, that's, Al. That's incredibly accurate. <laughs> wow. All right, follow I, that up, boys. Go ahead, Al. <laughs> yeah. I, I always felt a close affinity with Dr. Bunsen. I think I, I relate very deeply with his level of anxiety. <laughs> uh, I often feel like people I'm with either socially or professionally impact upon me the way Beaker does on Bunsen. So I, I feel very close affinity to Dr. Bunsen. All right. I would like to say something more fun. Like I would like to be, I want to be a Grover. I want to be a great Gonzo, but I'm, I'm a Dr. Bunsen and I have to live with that. If not Sam the Eagle, no one wants to be Sam the Eagle. No one wants to be Sam the Eagle. Well, yeah, no one wants to be, uh, what's his name? Link Hogthrob. <laughs> oh, it would have been better to say I'm both Statler and Waldorf. <laughs> oh, oh, that would be a good one. Actually, that, that sounds been a more funny like thing to say. Lawrence. All right, who's next? What sounds more like? What did you say? You say what sounds like more like me? <laughs> I think I'm. I think I'm offended. What did you say? No, no. I was going to say Statler and Wal- Waldorf. 
<sighs> I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I think Sarah might have just hit the nail on the head, honestly. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that might be me because I I try to be fun-loving and I try to be uplifting and I want artists to create great things. But deep down inside in places that I don't like to talk about it at Christmas parties, I'm really those two people. And you're going to keep going to the show, even though you're going to shit on it every single time. I'm not going to shit on it, but I'm definitely going to be like, that could have been better. Uh, You know, (laughs) Barbie overrated. Like, you know, you know, know, that's not the best Christmas Carol is Scrooge. I have that in me and I don't want to be that guy, but I am that guy. You know what, Sarah? Damn it. I think you should think of a a Statler and Waldorf esque joke for every everything that we (laughs) review on the show. (laughs) <laughs> the movie is overrated or god damn it i hated their hair how'd you like that barbie movie left in the box something like that i mean that's, you know. <laughs> oh, that's terrible oh my gosh we need to wrap that this is up terrible. what about you mark you what's who, yeah, mark, who you're, you're the last you? one you're the last one who's your doppelganger let me make a point though that raised by that that my, my comment earlier about the humor when you're with friends jokes can be bad Mm. And so that's okay. And I think that is the premise of the, we're going to do a vaudeville thing. It's already out of date in the seventies. It's decades out of date. We're going to do these jokes. (laughs) We're going to have freaking George Burns and Milton Berle, these people that are like these (laughs) ancient, these fossils, even at the time on the show, because it's okay. You don't have to be cutting edge with the humor. It's just, we're all, it's all in good fun. We're here together. And that's how I feel about the podcast. You know, humor is always optional. (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to be it'd be too much pressure to be in a comedy podcast and like have to be funny every time. I'm sorry. Well, that's I think, good news for I us. I think we're pretty good at being funny without the feeling the necessity of being funny. I laugh more with you guys than I do with almost anyone else. <laughs> that if I have to pick a Muppet, obviously these are as we were saying, they're mostly two-dimensional. They represent Getting past the gender dynamic stuff, I think the uh, narcissism and lack of the hamishness of the pig might be where some of me lies. I don't see that at all. Oh, really? I saw you more as a Ralph, a Ralph the dog. I can see a Ralph or something. I don't see you as a pig. Well, that's because you only know me as as this kind of older gentleman who's reflecting back on the world. <laughs> Did Randy Macho Man a voice just I jump can, on? Oh, you're right. That's, that is getting a little too... <laughs> Bit Randy Savage. Rolf will kick your ass. No, I mean, it's not that different. Well, thanks everybody for coming on the show. I've really appreciated everybody coming here. Thanks very much. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. See, all all voices go into. uh, That's better. That's a better voice. That's a better voice. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.